Very good. I invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3. Last time we were together in Philippians, and the exhortation was that we would rejoice in the Lord. And we looked at verses 1 through 3, that as we seek into the mind of Christ, we pursue true unity in the Spirit and reject the natural tendency unto self and self-righteousness. And through this all, we would remember with care that we do not rejoice in each other. We do not rejoice in our system. We do not rejoice in our circumstances. It is not in our friends that is the source of our contentment in the body, but rather we as a group of believers have our rejoicing in the Lord. We are here to rejoice in the God of our salvation. We are here to seek into the truth and the knowledge of the holy. We are here to know God. We seek not to allow that reality to get lost through some other priority or self-serving ideal, a very much an extension of the exhortation that Paul gave in chapter 2, let all things be done without murmurings and disputings, uh, to seek into the mind of Christ, and we'll see that even more so as we get into uh, verses 4 through 11 next week. Now, we did preach through the first three verses last time we were together, and um, I wanted to go back to verse 3 this evening. Because as Paul presented this topic in these first three verses of Philippians 3, his particular exhortation was directed toward a warning. It is perhaps within the scope of the struggles that the church of Philippi was going through that Paul saw, saw them as being somewhat vulnerable in that time to measures of deceit. And so Paul warned them against false teachers and particularly those who we often call Judaizers or legalizers who would seek to bind them back under the Mosaic law and thus bind them to the carnal ordinances as a gauge of their standing with God. He called these people dogs, evil workers, and the concision. And I did interpret these to be the same person, uh, the same type, the same category. Uh, there are those who disagree with me in this regard. As a matter of fact, I went back and looked at a message I preached on Philippians 3, uh, uh, several, I think it was 2013, and I did not necessarily present it in that light. I presented the characteristics of the, um, the characteristics of the dog, of the evil worker, and of the concision without necessarily saying that I equated them all as one person. I would believe that as I've studied through this more contextually. And then clarifying in verse 3, Paul makes it very evident that when he calls the, those people the concision, a word which in our English literally means mutilation, and uh, in the Greek, the word uh, speaks of, of cutting something off. That he was speaking of those who would teach that circumcision is required to have a right relationship with God or to be in God's covenant. To be saved, to have that right standing with God. Now we know from our study through the law, we know through Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council that this is most certainly not the case. And as he spoke on these things, as he sought to bring clarity, he said this in verse 3. For we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And I spoke briefly last time about what this means and what this does not. But I want to take time this evening to more thoroughly speak to this concept that we are the circumcision. When one looks into church history, one of the dominant movements within both Catholic and Protestant circles has been a movement which in modern times is called replacement theology. The concept behind this view is that when Israel rejected their Messiah, God rejected Israel. 
that he has completely been, been done with Israel, removed their place in the promises of God, and instead has given all of those promises to the church. Thus, the church becomes the inheritor of every covenant God has ever made, and thus the church becomes de facto Israel. So that every time I read Israel in the Old Testament, I'm really reading of me. I'm reading of the church. I'm reading of my covenants, my promises. And the Jews are not only in this view a rejected people, but because they are the ones who killed Messiah, Jesus Christ, they are not just a rejected people, but they are thus a cursed people, relegated to the trash heap of history and suited only to be killed like animals. This has undergirded the driving force of what we would call Christian anti-Semitism throughout the centuries. That going back to the Catholic Inquisitions, where you would see Jews readily killed as those who were the ones who killed Christ. Going back to the writings of Martin Luther, who hated the Jews with every fiber of his being because they are the ones who killed Christ. This is not, however, what the Bible teaches us, is it? The Bible does not teach us that the church has replaced Israel. The Bible does not teach that God has cast off his people. The Bible does not teach that the promises given to Israel have been undone, nor does it teach that they have been given to the church to the exclusion of Israel. And today I would like to walk through the teaching of the Bible on this. First, we will walk through why this general theology has arisen and what biblical precedent is given for many people who had many insights. We think particularly of, of the good that Martin Luther did as it relates to church history. And yet, for all of that good, why did he think this way? For all of that good, why has the Reformed movement throughout the centuries generally been deeply anti-Semitic? Why has the, the Catholic Church generally been deeply anti-Semitic, though they have at least had a true proximity to the Bible, if not a faith in it? And then second, we're going to walk through the passages which challenge the way we might interpret the verses that these other interpreters might use. So first, we're going to establish why they think the way they think, and then we'll establish the, the verses that help us have confidence that the way they're thinking about the Bible is wrong. And then we'll come to hopefully some manner of conclusion. So let's dig in. Uh, this might actually be a bit of a longer message, so let's dig into it. And we begin right here in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, where Paul contrasts physical circumcision with spiritual circumcision, telling the church that those who are physically circumcised are not the circumcision, meaning that the group which is physically circumcised is not the group which has been set apart by God in this time. Much to the contrary, it is those who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Jesus Christ, and have absolutely no confidence in the flesh that Paul calls the circumcision, that consists of uh, that group which is set apart by God. Jesus told the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, Woman, there is coming a day when you will neither worship in Jerusalem nor in Samaria, but they that worship God will worship him in spirit and in truth. And Paul says we are that circumcision who worship God in spirit. Not through the carnal ordinances, not through external alignment, but through a spiritual worship. 
Now, last week, we then went to Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, and Galatians 6, verse 15, both of which stated very clearly that in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision gives us any particular advantage, for what we have in Christ is not tied to anything physical, but only to the heart of faith and the answer of a good conscience toward God. So then the Bible teaches that the church's circumcision, salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, has replaced... Israel's circumcision. Why then can't we say that the church has replaced Israel? Well, we can say that the church has replaced Israel, but what we can't say is that the church has inherited the promises of Israel. And I know that that sounds a little, well, a little bit confusing. We'll, we'll, we'll iron it out. It is not necessarily that the church's circumcision has replaced Israel's circumcision. And the reason why is because Israel's circumcision never had to do with salvation. Israel's circumcision never had to do with salvation. Israel's circumcision had to do with promises, with the promises given to the nation. Not everyone who was circumcised, as we'll see in a few minutes, into the nation of Israel was going to go to heaven. The circumcision made with hands was never intended to imply heaven, uh, that they were heaven bound. The circumcision made with hands was intended to associate them with the nation and the promises that God would give to that nation. Again, we'll iron all this out. So what about these promises? Has the church inherited the promises of Israel? Has, have all of the, the promises of Israel that God has given, have they been given over to the church so that Israel no longer has them, the nation no longer has them, there's no expectation for the nation, there's only an expectation for the church. Where does this come from? We read this in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith the same are the children of Abraham. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For, as, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in the things, in all the things, which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereunto. So he says, I'm coming into the context of, of, of the material and the temporal for a minute, speaking of a man's covenant. Then he comes back to Abraham. Now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. Skipping from verse 16 to verse 27. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then ye be Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So we read in Galatians 3, and we find that Paul uses much of the same logic that we found related to circumcision. That God made promises to Abraham. Abraham believed these promises, and this faith was counted unto him for righteousness. And then from this, Paul says, all then which are of faith 
are thus the children of Abraham. Okay, so then if we are the circumcision, not Israel, when Israel has been given physical circumcision, but we're the circumcision because we worship God in spirit, and if I'm a child of Abraham, just as a Jew would say that they are a child of Abraham, God says all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham, not only his own family, and I am one of those who has inherited the blessings of faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now consider with me how this thought process plays out in the mind of many. As Paul would say, I'm speaking after the manner of man here, I'm not telling you what is true, he says. I'm telling you what people incorrectly rationalize by reading this passage. So, so, so take, this, take this to be the rationalization of one who is reading this passage and interpreting replacement into it, okay? Abraham was not justified by the law, but by faith. Isaac and Jacob were not justified by, by the law, but by faith. I am not justified by the law, but by faith. So then any promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was not necessarily given to Israel as a nation, but were only given to the subset of Israel that had faith. And that's what a replacement theologian would believe. That when God is speaking of the seed of Abraham, he's not speaking of his lineage in the flesh. He's speaking of his lineage in the faith. And thus Isaac, and thus Jacob, and thus Israel. So every promise that God makes to Israel throughout the Bible, God's not actually talking about Israel, the nation. He's talking about Israel, the, the faith seed of Abraham. Those that are of Israel, the faithful. Does that make sense? That's what they think? That's what they see? So the church has always existed then as a subset of the nation of Israel. The way many people would interpret this then is that the church, the church did not begin at Pentecost. The church has always been. That, that, that going all the way back to Adam and Eve and Seth, they were a part of the church. And that Abraham was a part of the church. And Isaac was the church. And, and Israel was the church. And the subset of national Israel who believed God were the church. And then the church just continued into Pentecost and opened up in a broader way to the Gentile nations, and thus every promise that has been given from beginning to end is for the church. And Israel is the church. Because God's not talking to the nation, he's talking to the subset of the nation that had faith. So these are promises to the church within the nation. The group of those in the nation of Israel who believed God by faith. And since in Christ there is no circumcision, and since in Christ I am Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, then the promise made to the church, or made to Israel, are not promises made to the nation, but to the church. And to drive this manner of thinking home, just three chapters later in Galatians chapter 6, right, at, right after thus, Paul tells us this in verses 15 and 16. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. And Paul seems to be speaking here of the Israel of God as the church. So then this settles it, right? I might look at this in one of two ways. 
either that the church has in fact superseded Israel's promises because Israel has rejected their Messiah, thus God has rejected Israel, or we might even say, as I just mentioned, that the promises were never the nations to begin with. The promises were only ever given to those who were Abraham's seed, which Paul defined in chapter 3 as those who have followed in Abraham's faith. Seems pretty open and shut, right? Now remember, as I rationalize all this, I don't agree with what I'm rationalizing here. You'll find that one of the best ways, one of the best ways to truly understand what you believe is to be able to rationalize those who disagree with you, to be able to actually understand their perspective. It's a very important thing. So then why am I preaching a message to tell you this is not true? Well, because the Bible is much bigger than just Galatians chapter 3 and Galatians chapter 6, isn't it? On their own, these verses would seem to say what I have just described. But the Bible is a single book written by a single author, the Holy Spirit of God, penned by many men over thousands of years. It is a unified message. It is a unified whole and is understood within the context of its own pages. As the Bible is one account written by the inspiration of God, it has one message and it does not contradict and it does not undermine itself. So then the question becomes, all right, I read this text and I see it in a certain way and I can understand exactly where these people who are rationalizing this position come from, but are there biblical passages that would seem to contradict this way of thinking? And we do have to reconcile the Bible with itself if we're going to be consistent. And the argument I just made, while perfectly valid when presented within the self-contained context of Galatians and supported by statements of circumcision in the other prison epistles, Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians, falls under the weight of the other teachings of the scriptures in regard to the nature of God's relationship with Israel, with the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the scriptures. So let's consider Paul's teaching in a few other places particularly Romans chapters 9 through 11. And then after that, I want to give you a few other elements that, that, that would be very difficult to reconcile with the position that I just articulated to you. So we'll consider Romans 9 through 11 as a counterpoint to this argument, and then we'll put it together. Now, as Paul begins Romans 9, he sounds very similar to what we have just read in Galatians. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 9, if we were to take Romans chapter 9 just as Romans 9 and not 10 and 11 as well, we would probably say, okay, Romans 9 agrees entirely with Galatians 3 and Galatians 6. So now we have multiple passages of Scripture that settle this, except that Paul goes on to explain deeper context in Romans 10 and 11, and we must carry the context of his entire argument in Romans 9 through 11 into his argument of Galatians 3 4, 5, and 6. And in fact, Romans 9 sounding so familiar to Galatians is a real benefit to us. Because what that allows us to do is it allows us to make a comfortable and unambiguous transition whereby we can interpret Galatians 3 and 6 in light of Galatians, uh, Romans 9 through 11 because Romans 9 is so clearly the same argument as Galatians chapters 3 and 6, if that makes sense. So in Romans chapters 9, uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, 
And naturally, I won't be able to teach through this deeply and thoroughly. I can't get through three chapters of Romans in a night um, in a thorough way. I got through five chapters of Romans during COVID, um, but it was deeply, it was very broad, right? Very broad brushed. Um, and uh, I, got through almost, I got through one full chapter of Romans this morning, very broad brushed. Um, we're not going to be able to, to, to get through these three chapters in any particular way. We're going to keep broad brushing here. But we do read this in Romans 9, 1 through 13. For I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have a great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. All right, now immediately we see that Paul is, is speaking of his brethren according to the flesh, right? And he'll continue here in verse 4. Who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, okay? So we know that he is now equating Israel with his brethren according to the flesh. So if we choose to step into this passage equating Israel with the church, we've already done something outside of Paul's own definition. Paul has just defined who Israel is here. Israel is his brethren according to the flesh, right? I cannot then say in the next several verses that Israel is the church. I can't do that because Paul has already defined himself. Verse 5, whose are the fathers and, to whom, and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. Not as though the word of God had taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Okay, now at this point we say, oh, interesting. Not everyone who is in Israel is of Israel. Okay, so now we might have a redefinition of Israel, and we need to be sensitive to that. Where's Paul going with this? Who is Israel then when he has already called his brethren according to the flesh Israel? Verse 7. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. All right, so just because they have a fleshly connection to a certain person does not necessarily make them a part of the seed. Verse 9, for this is, a, uh, for this is the word of promise, at this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the promise of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Okay, so we read a very similar argument to Romans 9 that we found in Galatians chapter 3. But notice that he makes some very important distinctions. First, he says, as we mentioned, that those who are his kinsmen according to the flesh, in other words, those who are blood-related to him through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through the tribe of Benjamin, are Israelites. And that unto them pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, the fathers, and such. So immediately, as we mentioned, we cannot say that God never had any investment in the physical nation of Israel. And that everything God did in the Old Testament was focused only on a subset of Israel. Because unto the physical nation, now remember, before Paul redefined, if you want to call it this, before Paul says not all of Israel are, are, not all in Israel are of Israel, 
Paul has said that unto his brethren, his kinsmen according to the flesh, pertains the adoption, the promises, these things. But then Paul does narrow the field, saying that not everyone who is in Israel is of Israel. But recall, he narrowed the field after he said that unto his brethren pertains these promises. Don't, don't miss that. That, through the pro that though the promises were made to all, the promises, the, the election, the promises, the adoption was given to all. It was made to all. Yet they were only received by a subset of the nation that followed their father Jacob into the faith which God had promised and through which the promises of God were appropriated. Paul's argument here is that the adoption and the promises and the ordinances and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law were given to the whole nation who he calls Israel. But then only a subset of that nation followed God into faith. Does that make sense? Hope it makes sense. And this is how God has always operated in relation to his gifts and his callings. Paul demonstrates this with the example of Jacob and Esau. Paul gives this example of Jacob and Esau. He spoke of Sarah and said, Abraham, not every child of Abraham is going to be a child of promise, right? But only through Sarah. And then he says, and even in Rebekah, Rebekah had two sons. Both the sons of Isaac, Jacob and Esau. And yet Esau was the one who was entitled as the firstborn to the birthright and the blessing. He was of Isaac, right? Just as Ishmael was of Abraham, just as all of the children of Israel were of Israel. And yet they are not all Israel that are of Israel. They are not all Isaac that are of Isaac. Now, the promises were still made to Israel, to all of Israel. The adoption, the giving of the law, the, the glory, that was given to the nation, but only a subset of it received it. So we have Jacob and we have Esau. Esau was the one who was entitled as the firstborn to the birthright and the blessing. Yet at their birth, God told Rebekah that it would be the younger Jacob who would receive these promises. And that because, as Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verse 13, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. Now, of course, there's a great deal of misunderstanding as to what this means, and we've spoken unto it many times at Legacy Baptist Church. The word hate in the Bible does not mean an emotional loathing, an emotional dislike, as it has come to mean in our culture. It does not mean that God chose them out from the womb and said, Esau, you are out because I don't want you, and Jacob, I like you, so I'm going to give you something. It does not mean that. Rather, that word hate means to place lower in priority, value, or favor. So Jacob was preferred over Esau as the child of promise. That though there were these two sons of Isaac, only one of them became the child of promise, and it was not the one that we would expect to be the child of promise, right? The one that we would have expected to be the child of promise would have been Esau, because unto him pertained the promise. It was his promise to begin with. It was supposed to be his promise because he was the firstborn. He had it by right. But Jacob was preferred over Esau because, as Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16 tells us, Esau was a profane person. He had no faith, so he sold his birthright for a morsel of meat. 
Far be it from God to bind his promises to a profane man simply because he was the firstborn, right? And so, though Esau had the right to the promises, he forfeited that right by his own refusal to believe, by his own refusal to appropriate God's promises. And Jacob was given that right because his faith compelled him to seek that blessing for himself, even if he did it in ways that we would not agree with. And this is the template by which God has always operated, that regardless of the provisions he has made for any person to be or people to be blessed, it is only those who are willing to receive it who do, in fact, receive it. So do you see how this pertains to Israel? That to all of Israel was given this, this degree of promise, but only a subset of them received it. Only those not through not, not everyone through Abraham, but only through Abraham and Isaac. Not everyone through Isaac, but only Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Who became Israel, whose 12 sons all inherited the blessing. Now, as Romans 9 continues then, Paul continues to elaborate on the justice of this divine operation, that God is perfectly within his rights as creator to bless whom he will and to curse who he will, and no man has any standing as a created being to question God's choice in this. So when Jacob is given the birthright, though it was naturally Esau's, because Jacob had faith and Esau did not, it is not our right to question God about that. But God, you broke your own rules. Well, no, God's rule is the just shall live by faith, right? The rule is not you, the firstborn unequivocally gets everything. Just as in the New Testament, oh, Jesus, you broke the Sabbath rules. Well, no, the Sabbath rule, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, right? So you're not breaking anything. You're doing what need be done. And not only then, excuse me, and when the church is ushered into the relationship with God, though it was naturally Israel's promise, because the church had faith and Israel did not, it's not our right to question God on that either. In fact, this picture, as Paul will elaborate on it, the picture is more like Israel is living like Esau and the church is living like Jacob. Israel had the natural right to these things, but they despised their birthright. And so it was inherited by that one who wants it, because God's always worked that way. Not only was it God's right to choose Jacob over Esau, not only was it God's right to usher the church in and not the nation, but then as we peel back another layer, we find, in fact, that it was God's design through foreknowledge that this would be so. That just as God knew in the womb that the elder would serve the younger in the days of Jacob and Esau, God did not make Esau a profane man, right? God did not design Esau to be a profane man specifically so that he could reject Esau. As a matter of fact, we have no proof in the scriptures that Esau did not come to faith, we simply know that in his younger years, he rejected his birthright and blessing. By the time we get to Jacob coming back, Esau welcomes him with open arms, does he not? And Esau regards Jacob's inheritance, and so Esau moves out of the land when Jacob returns. Jacob expected Esau to meet him with an army and to fight him for what Esau wanted. That was not Esau when Jacob returned 20 years later, was it? 
Esau came and embraced him and said, my brother, it's good to see you. Here's your family. Your family's beautiful. And then Esau left the land because it was Jacob's land. Maybe Esau changed. Maybe Esau finally found repentance. We don't know. Now, the Reformed theologian would say, no, Esau was predestined to damnation. He had to be. God formed him to be damned. The Bible does not say that. that does not, that's not what it means, that Esau has been hated of God. It simply means Esau was slower in priority, favor, or value as it related to the promises because he despised his birthright. We need to be careful that we don't read in what's not there in our Bibles. So God knew in the womb that the elder would serve the younger in the days of Jacob and Esau. So too God knew from the foundation of the world that Israel would at some point, at the point of Messiah, falter in their faith and that the church would thus prevail for a time. Now take note, this is a logical leap, unsupported in any text, then to assume that because God knew it would happen, that God made it happen. Just because God knows something is going to happen, just because God intends for something to happen, doesn't mean he has forced our wills. It simply means he has woven history in such a way that he knew what would come about, and he has designed it all unto his ends and glory. That God thus overrode the will of any individual or nation is wholly unsupported in Scripture. And it is not that God is forcing the will of man here, only that God in his foreknowledge knew the decisions that man would make and wove history together in order to use the decisions that man was going to make to bring about his purposes. So we read in Romans chapter 3, verses 30 through 33. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, notice the contrast here. It's not, the contrast is not, is the, 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 the unbeliever and the believer. It's the Gentile world and Israel. This is not the church here, is it? There's no way in context that this Israel that Paul is speaking of is the church. This Israel is contrasted with the Gentile world, which has found faith, which means the Gentile world would be the one that would be closer equi uh, 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 um, equated to the church here, right? The Gentile world found faith, but Israel... So Paul, at the end of Romans 9, has not changed his definition of Israel away from the, his brethren according to the flesh. Don't lose sight of that. Don't let somebody tell you that, the, that, don't let somebody interpret Israel to be the church in Romans 9 through 11, because it simply is not the case. But Israel, verse 31, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Why? Why did they not obtain? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. So the Gentiles, like Jacob, had no natural right to righteousness because they were outside of the promises and the glory and the covenants and the fathers and all of those things. They, those were not given to them. They did not pertain to the Gentile world. But they found it. They attained unto righteousness because they had faith. Just like Jacob attained unto inheritance because he had faith. While the nation of Israel, which had every natural right to this righteousness, unto them did pertain the covenants and the laws and the fathers and all of these things. They did not attain it because just like Esau, they stumbled at the stumbling stone of faith. Interesting. 
I wonder. I wonder what the, uh, a Jewish man hearing that would think if they truly understood that what Paul is doing here is saying, Israel, you're being like Esau. And the church is Jacob in that illustration. The church had no right unto this, but they attained it because they wanted it. And you had every right to it and you gave it up, though it was that close to you. All you had to do was take it and you didn't want it. That's the picture of Romans 9. That's what Romans 9 is saying. Now, Romans 10 continues to elaborate on the nature of the gospel and Israel's relationship to it. I'm going to skip Romans 10 altogether. The conclusion of the chapter is prophecies from both Moses and Isaiah that the nation of Israel would, in fact, reject their birthright through unbelief and that it would be given to another, and that would be to the church. But it is in Romans 11 where we find that though the church has become an heir to the spiritual promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yet it does not mean that God's promises to the nation, the nation unto whom pertains all of these things, Israel, have been annulled. This is where we find that God has not said, well, church, you get all of these things, and Israel, you get nothing. And this is important because it gives us the framework for understanding where the church stands and where Israel stands in this whole matter. So Romans 11, verses 1 through 5 says this, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. You say, okay, he, of course he hasn't cast away his people, the subset of Israel, the church, whatever, right? Nope, 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 nope. Look at what Paul says next. For I also am an Israelite. Okay, yeah, of course you're an Israelite. The church, whatever, right? No, 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 keep reading. Of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Aha, see, we are talking about the flesh here. We're not talking about the spirit. He connects Israelite to Abraham and Benjamin. He's connecting it to his brethren according to the flesh, right? God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. Wot ye not what the scripture saith of Elias? How he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. Elias being Elijah, right? But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so, then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. All right, so here's what we find. We find that God has not cast off Israel, his people entirely, but much to the contrary, he has kept a foothold with his people, just like in the days of Elijah, when Elijah says, I'm the only one left, right, after Mount Carmel, I'm the only one left, I'm the only one that cares, and he's all discouraged, and God says, why are you, why are you pouting? I have reserved for me 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There is a remnant. I have kept, I have kept, the, the, I have kept the bond intact. Though there's not much left, there's something left. Now Paul equates this to this time where the church is the focal point through grace. And he says, has God completely cast off his people, as the, the, the Catholic Inquisitions would tell us, as uh, the, the Lutheran doctrine, at least as Martin Luther espoused it, would tell us? Are they a cursed people? No. 
God has maintained His remnant with the nation of Israel, with the physical nation of Israel. And this is a remnant according to the election of grace, which means there, are a, there is a remnant of God's people who have stepped into salvation by grace through faith alone and who have thus stepped into the church, right? God has not cast away His people. And this kind of ends the debate, right? Has the church replaced Israel? No. God here in Romans 11 still makes a distinction that says Israel has a foothold. The nation of Israel still has a foothold. God still regards in Romans 11 the nation of Israel as something different from the church. And he says there is a portion of Israel that according to the election of grace has entered into that that, that body, which would be the church. But he still distinguishes the election of Israel, the election that they have as a nation from the election of grace. They're not the same thing. They are, one has not replaced the other. One is working in lieu of the other. Are the Jews thus worthy of the ire of the Catholic Church? Has the Lutheran Church, through the influence of Martin Luther, uh, as they've heaped on, onto the, the, the Jews the vitriol of, of, of anti-Semitism throughout history, is this valid? And Paul says in Romans 11, no, it absolutely is not. But you say, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not Paul's argument here. Paul argues that there's a remnant according to the election of grace. So then they are not fully cast out, not because of the nation, but because of those through in the subset of the nation that has accepted Jesus as their savior. So maybe we can reject the rest of them as being no longer biblically relevant. And we basically say, well, accept Jesus or die, right? That's kind of the Catholic Inquisition idea. You either stop being a Jew and you start being a Christian or you die. There, there. See, we have just forcibly brought them into the election of grace. Problem solved. We can, we can kill the rest of them. No, because Romans 11 doesn't end at verse 5. Paul goes on to say in verses 7 and 8, What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it. And the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. So Israel has not obtained the promises, but the election, according to grace, has obtained it instead. This election includes a remnant of the nation of Israel, but the nation of Israel itself is still on the outside looking in. And the rest, Paul says, the rest of Israel, the rest of the nation that has not accepted by faith this election of grace... They were blinded. And then Paul goes on to quote from Isaiah 29, verse 10, describing the nation of Israel as being a, having a spirit of slumber that they should not hear. Now take note of this message. It does not say that they have a spirit of rejection and perdition, does it? It does not say they have a, re, a, a spirit of complete damnation. It does not say that they are dead to God. Paul did not say they are dead to God, that the nation that has not entered into the election of grace is dead to God. They are asleep to God. A spirit of slumber, not a spirit of perdition. If they are asleep by the decreed foreknowledge of God, might it be, you and I would ask, that there's coming a point when God will wake them up? 
why would they not use the term dead if there was no awakening to, to take place? So then we have a small subset, a remnant. God is hanging on to Israel, to the nation of Israel, through a remnant who has entered into the election of grace and thus into the church by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the rest of the nation is sleeping, not dead. Let's continue reading. Verses 11 and 12. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles, for to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them be the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. So Isaiah says that they would have a spirit of slumber, Isaiah 29, and Paul uses the analogy that the nation has stumbled. But sleeping people can awake, and stumbled people aren't people that have fallen not to get back up. And Paul specifically says that the nation has not stumbled that they should fall. Now, here we have a translation decision in the King James Bible, which kind of muddies the waters a little bit. Paul says that the nation of Israel has not fallen, they've only stumbled, right? And then he goes on to say in the same verse that their fall has meant the salvation of the... Wait, 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 you just said they hadn't fallen, Paul. What do you mean their fall has brought about salvation to the Gentiles? You, they haven't fallen. As you might expect, these two words translated fall are different Greek words, right? I have labeled that for you there uh, as it relates to our slides with color coding to show you which fall pertains to which Greek word. The first word, have they stumbled that they should fall, is a word that literally means to fall down. It's the standard Greek word, pipto. And then the second, the next two uses of the word fall, God forbid, but rather through their fall, and then now if the fall of them, this word means a lapse or an error or a fault, a mistake, more akin to the idea of stumbling than of falling. So Paul says that their slumber or their stumble has allowed the Gentile world to become co-beneficiaries of salvation. Their diminishment has thus brought to the Gentiles great riches. That God has opened up this, this faith to those who would receive it in the Gentile world and it is, in a manner of speaking, at the expense of Israel who rejected that faith. And this brings us to a nice, long, final message toward the end of Romans 11 regarding Israel. I'm going to read a, a large part here, verses 15 through 29, and then we'll talk about it. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, right? So Israel is cast away, the world is thus reconciled to God. What shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Do you see how Paul anticipates them being received again? And we're not talking about, we're talking about national Israel here. We have to be, right? Context has made that clear. Verse 16, For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, wert grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches which were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, that meaning good, well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. 
Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou shalt be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to nature in a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. That blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for, their fa- for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. There's so much to say here, right? I, pre- I, I gave you a really long chunk, and that really long chunk, boy, uh, there's so much that could be said. Paul states that they have for a time been cast away that the world might receive the benefit, but that there would be a day when they would, as he says in verse 15, be received back. And Paul connected this time of reception with the resurrection of the dead. What will the reception of them again be but life from the dead? Indicating, as we study in prophecy, that the reconciliation of the nation of Israel back to God will take place around the time of Christ's return and thus the resurrection of the dead. And so what Paul says here complies entirely with what we know of prophecy, that Israel will not, will not return to God until such time as they are brought to their knees through the tribulation, but that at that time of Jesus Christ's return, when the dead in Christ shall rise first, when we see that, At that time, at that resurrection, Israel will be a part of God's plan. Paul gives an illustration thus of an olive tree. And he says that the root of the olive tree is holy. The root being God's purpose in this world through his people. God himself, connected to God, connected to God's purpose, connected to God's covenant, connected to God's plan. And if the root is holy, every branch that's connected to the root is holy, right? Jesus said a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit and an evil tree cannot bring forth good fruit. If you're connected to, the, to, to a holy root, then you, are, then you are thus holy because the branches are not sustained in and of themselves. The branch of any tree is sustained by the trunk, by the root. And he says... If some of those branches be broken off, and that would be a picture of Israel being removed from the purpose of God through their unbelief. That God cannot give the promises that were theirs by birthright because they have broken themselves off from his, from faith. Just as Esau, who broke himself off from his birthright by selling it to Jacob for a morsel of meat. And God, far be it from God, to keep a branch connected to the vine that is lifeless. And so he broke them off. This is God's right. And if the wild olive branch of the Gentiles were thus grafted into the tree through their belief, and take note here, the grafting into the tree is not salvation itself. 
It's not belief itself. Notice it doesn't say they were grafted into belief. They were grafted in through belief. So this does not fall into the predestination idea that says they were made to believe, but rather that when they exercised their faith, God thus put them into the tree. Israel was not broken off of the tree of belief. They were broken off of the tree of God's purpose through their unbelief. God did not remove from them salvation. God did not remove from them faith. God removed them from his purpose because they had no faith, because they rejected faith. Esau's birthright was not faith. Esau had no faith, therefore he lost his birthright. The root of the tree here is not, is, is, is not faith. The tree is not faith. The Calvinists will say this, this olive tree is the olive tree of faith. It's not. Because it is by their lack of faith that they were pulled. Their choice to not have faith caused them to be broken off. God did not say, no faith. Therefore, you are broken off. Right? The, the, the unbelief came before being broken off. The unbelief was not bro being broken off. The Gentile world being grafted into the tree was not them being given faith. It was because they had faith that they were grafted into the tree. Take note of that. The Gentiles were not grafted into the tree of belief. The Gentiles were grafted into the tree because of their belief. Their choice to believe caused God to add their wild olives into the holy root of God's salvation and purpose. So this illustration in no way implies that God chooses who gets saved and who doesn't. That's completely outside of both the context and the content of this passage. Only that those who exercise faith are then divinely ushered into God's election and everything that God's election brings with it by virtue of faith. So these wild olives thus partake of the root, which is holy, and so they are holy themselves. And this is God's right, is it not? But notice then what God says. God says he is just as able to graft the natural branches back into the tree if they were to again exercise faith. And to this end, God also is just as capable of breaking off the Gentile world again if the church, if the Gentile world were to reject faith. So Paul says to the wild branches, fear. Don't, don't lord yourself over the natural branches which have been broken off. Don't mock them. Don't lord yourself over them. Certainly don't kill them. Right? Fear. Because God could do to you what he did to them. Now, this is not threatening to take away your salvation. This is threatening to take the body of the Gentiles out of God's purpose in the same way the body of Gentiles was ushered in through the body of Israel being taken out. In the same way, God sa uh, Paul says, you know what? Maybe there's a third group. Maybe if, 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 we don't, if we don't continue to live out faith as the Gentile world, if we reject faith, maybe, just maybe, God will take us out and graft something else in to do his will. Or, as the case may be, bring about the end of the world which we see from prophecy is God's plan, right? We don't see another one unless he's got another mystery uh, to reveal in time. I would not expect it, <laughs> but no one expects a mystery, right? 
To this end, Paul calls the wild branches, the church is characterized by the Gentile world, not to glory over Israel. Because they are not dead to God, they are slumbering, they have stumbled. See, we don't bear up the root. God doesn't need us. We, we are not the foundation upon which the... God is not dependent upon the church. The church is dependent upon God. We, are, we have not made God holy. God has made us holy. God doesn't need us. If we don't exercise faith, God can say, Patuko, I'll do it. I'll, I'll figure out another way. I, 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 will, I will do it another way, just as he did with Israel. He broke off those branches and he said, I'm going to do it another way because you did not exercise faith. It is not our own efforts that have gotten us where we are. For thousands of years, the Gentile world rested in darkness. How dare we glory over the stumbling of the natural branches of the olive tree of God's divine purpose and blessing. And then in verse 25, Paul clarifies the ambiguity, as it were, of the illustration. That blindness in Israel has happened in part specifically in order that the Gentile world might experience the mercies of God. God allowed Israel to be blind for your sake and for my sake. That does not mean we go around killing Israel. We don't do that because God has set them aside for our sake. We love them for this. But make no mistake, Paul says in Romans eleven twenty six, 26, all Israel shall be saved. Now we know this doesn't mean the church. The Calvinist says, yeah, all Israel, all of the subset of Israel who will be saved, the church, they will all be saved. Of course they will. Predestination, wrong. Nowhere in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 has Paul defined Israel as the church. You, we cannot say that. All Israel shall be saved. He has defined it in Romans 11 as his brethren, as those of the seed of Abraham, as those of the seed of Isaac, as those of the seed of Jacob. And he even quotes here then. We'll get there in just a moment. Let me, let me not get ahead of myself. We know this. First, because the context of the passage of these three chapters, there has been a clear distinction between the Gentiles and the Israelites, and God has said the Gentiles inherit that which Israel has lost. Now he says Israel will be saved on the basis not of nationality but of faith. Paul has not been calling the Gentiles unbelievers and the Israelites believers. Much to the contrary, he has been calling Israel the unbelievers in this passage and the Gentiles the believers, right? So we can't say that Israel's the church because he's been saying that the Gentile world is the world that has inherited righteousness. And, the, and Israel is, the, is, is the, the realm that has lost out on righteousness. That's not the church. The Gentile world is the church in this illustration. And so when Paul says all Israel shall be saved, he cannot mean that this is the church. It has to be the nation, Right? Now, let me make a quick note here. So many have, have, have interpreted this to believe then that all Israeli, that anyone who is a Jew gets into heaven by, by de facto. That all Jews throughout every generation get into heaven, they, they, they get their get into heaven free card because they're a Jew. No. Paul is saying all Israel will be saved. There's coming a time when the nation will be restored that generation of Israel will nationally receive their Messiah. That's what he's talking about. Throughout the age of grace, throughout this age of slumber, any, any, any person of the seed of, of Abraham, the lineage of Abraham in the flesh, Isaac and Jacob, who does not receive Jesus by grace through faith, goes to a sinner's hell. But that last generation at the resurrection of the dead and the return of the Messiah, when they shall look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as, they, as, as for uh, um, 
I forget the exact phrasing, but they will mourn for him, right? And they will receive him as their Messiah. That, that will be the salvation of Israel. That will be the time where the nation is ushered into faith as a nation, just as they rejected faith as a nation in the days of Christ's first advent. Now, second, notice the Old Testament concept that Paul points to in verses 26 and 27. I only give you 27 here. There shall come out of Zion a deliverer and shall turn away the ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. This does not quote a specific passage, per se, in the Old Testament. I can't send you to chapter and verse to read those words, except like every prophet ever. Every prophet said this. Ezekiel and the Valley of Dry Bones. That's what God was saying with the Valley of Dry Bones. There are these skeletons lying in this valley, and then Ezekiel, see, he, he sees the, 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 the breath come upon them, and then they get flesh, and they get skin, and they stand up, and God says, this is the nation of Israel. Ezekiel when he writes on one stick Ephraim and he writes on one stick Judah and God says, put those sticks together and Ezekiel put them together and they became one. And God said, the nation will be reunited one day in faith. Jeremiah promising a future for the northern tribes after the northern tribes had already gone into captivity and had been dissolved into the Assyrian Empire. Nearly every prophecy, uh, prophetic promise of Isaiah is this way. Do a study on how many times God promises to restore not Israel. And I made, I made this very clear as we walked through Jeremiah. How many times does God say, I will restore Jacob? Not Israel, Jacob. You would think if God was talking about the subset of Israel that had faith, the church that, that, that exists in the days of Israel, that he would never use the term Jacob to talk about redemption. Jacob was Jacob's uncovenant, non-covenant name. When Jacob entered into the covenant, God changed his name to show him that he was a part of his covenant. God would never use the term Jacob to talk about redemption if he wasn't talking about the nation, the blood nation of Israel. He would always use the term Israel, but he doesn't. He says, I will bring a deliverer who will bring, uh, who, who will, who will, um, um, turn away the ungodliness, not from Israel, but from Jacob, right? The Old Testament makes numerous promises, not simply to spiritual Israel, but to the children of Jacob, to both the northern and the southern kingdoms, promising their restoration, promising their faith, promising their future. And Paul validates this in Romans 11, verses 27 and 28, that God has major plans for the nation of Israel, he says in verse 26 that all Israel shall be saved. And the final proof that Paul is not talking about some sort of spiritual Israel or the church here, but the nation of Israel is found in verse 28. Speaking to this Israel that will be saved, he says they are enemies of the gospel. If the church is the enemy of the gospel, we're in trouble. But he says as pertaining to this Israel, concerning the gospel... They're enemies. They're enemies of the gospel. But as concerning the election of God, not the election of grace, but the election of the nation, the, the, that which is represented by physical circumcision, that which is represented 
by their connection to the law and the promises and the glory and the fathers. That election, because of that election, they are still beloved of the Father. God has not forgotten those promises. God has not given those promises to the church. We have an election of grace, but they have an election of their own, and God has not forsaken it. And for that election, they are still beloved because God has to give them the kingdom that he's promised them. He, he hasn't done that yet. He has to give them David on the throne over them perpetually. He has to give them that time where all of their enemies will be undone and they will, will, will and, and God will rule and reign over them. It, he's promised it. He hasn't given it yet. There's an election that God has for them that they've not received and God thus still has a plan for them. They are enemies of the gospel, but there's coming a, a time where they will be saved and when, once they receive by faith their Messiah, God will be able to usher them into the election that he has always had for them, finally. And when will this be? At the resurrection of the dead. And all of this for a singular reason given in verse 29, because the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. God's promises cannot be undone. God was not standing there. I had a discussion with my children yesterday. My wife had made a pesto sauce, and it looked a little green, as pesto sauces do. And my wife decided to call it goop. And this was not appealing to my children. And so we were going through various other names that we could call it that might be appealing. I suggested a couple that maybe weren't so appealing at first. Um, and then I said, well, let's just call it cake then. And so throughout the time of the meal, I was asking if anyone wanted more cake. And my children were struggling with this because of course they wanted cake, but they did not want the pesto sauce, although it was delicious, by the way. Um, it was a delicious pesto. It was just a little bit green, right? By its nature. And so we got into a discussion about how important it is that we not change the definition of something that already has a definition because then we're not communicating anymore. And I told them that this is often what happens in, in Christian or in, in religious circles, that they take a word like salvation or belief or repentance or confession or predestination, which already has a definition, and they change the definition, but use the word without telling you they've changed the definition. And you are thinking one thing and they're thinking another thing in order to bring about, and, and, and brings about a miscommunication. And you, usually it's for some nefarious purpose to make you think that they're saying something they're not. The gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. If God looked at the nation of Israel and throughout all of the prophets told them, I'm giving you a kingdom. I'm giving Jacob a kingdom. I, have, I will bring a, a deliverer to take away the sins of Jacob. The valley of dry bones, my nation, my people who are, who are, are, are a skeleton will, will get flesh and will get skin and, and will, will, will have a, a heart. I will take away their heart of stone and I will give them a heart of flesh. I will take Ephraim and I will take Jacob and I will put them together. If God was saying, well, you know, there's the Ephraim part of the church, which is the Gentile world, and the Jacob part of the church, which is the Israel remnant, and I'm going to put them together to make one unified church in the days of Jesus, then, then he was redefining everything in, in, in a deliberate attempt to deceive. That's not God. When God says, I will restore Ephraim after Ephraim has already been taken into captivity, what he said is what he meant. 
the northern tribes of Israel have not been forsaken. They are going to reunite with the southern tribes into a national Israel. They will find salvation through, by grace, through faith. They will come to a point of belief. God will give them the promises he's promised them from the beginning. And if this is not our God, then who is our God? And if God can so easily redefine and strip promises from those who fully expected them, what are we going to face on the day of judgment when God says, ah, ha, 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 guess what? That Bible that you read and you thought said this, it's not what I meant when I wrote it. You never really understood it, but it really meant that you're all damned. Oh, that's not our God. That's not how God operates. God would not have given us this big book if he didn't want us to know him. Just as some sort of red herring. It's not, it's not how God works. So we take God at his word because the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. God does not go back on his word. And so all of these things, of all these things, this is the sum. God called a man named Abraham to leave his home and to go into a land which God would tell him. And God would there make of him a great nation. Abraham believed God and this was counted unto him for righteousness. His son Isaac believed God and became a child of promise. Through Ishmael was Abraham's, uh, though Abraham, uh, Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn, Isaac became the child of promise because Isaac had faith. His son Jacob believed God and became the child of promise. Though Isaac was, uh, Esau was Isaac's firstborn, Jacob was the child of promise because Jacob had faith. Jacob had 12 sons, of whom became a great nation. Unto this nation God gave great promises of a future earthly kingdom. Unto this nation God gave great promises of deliverance from their enemies. Uh, and unto this nation God presented these promises as the culmination of his saving work through Messiah, by whom they would not only uh, obtain this national redemption, but that they would also obtain a spiritual redemption at that time. God then sent this Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, Israel rejected this Messiah because he came to bring the spiritual redemption in order that he might bring the national redemption. And Israel rejected the spiritual redemption, believing that they did not need that spiritual redemption. And so God, thus recognizing that they uh, rejected the spiritual redemp redemption, he could not in righteousness and justice give them the national redemption. So instead he gave them a spirit of slumber. And to use this opportunity to usher in the remainder of the world into that spiritual redemption, a body which would be called the church. The church has assumed thus the responsibility that once fell upon Israel to manifest God to the world. But it has not usurped Israel's place in God's heart, nor has it usurped the national redemption that is still due to Israel through their election. There is coming a day when Israel will be brought to its knees as a nation, and on that day, having no one else to help them, having no other place to turn to, they will cry out unto God, and God will answer by sending Jesus of Nazareth back to this earth in his resurrected body to deliver them, and they will look upon him, and they will believe him whom they have pierced, and they will receive him as their own. And upon receiving them, by virtue of their faith, they will become eligible for the national redemption that God had always promised to give them but could not because they did not have faith. Then God will defeat their enemies and he will establish a kingdom and David will rule over them. So when Paul tells us that we are the circumcision, 
He wants us to know that we, the church, are the chosen nation called by God to represent him to this world at this time, just as Israel once did. And as Paul describes in Romans 11, just as Israel will once again do. So the church has not replaced Israel, certainly not in the way replacement theology describes it. We have assumed the responsibilities that Israel forfeited while they are in their slumber, awaiting the time when the will of God sees fit to chasten Israel back to himself and usher into the world the culmination of his kingdom program. And as for we who are in Christ, the application to this is several fold. Thank you for bearing with me. First, we be careful not to glory over the broken branches. Israel is not forgotten of God. Israel is not cursed of God. Anti-Semitism is a rising fad in the church because of the resurgence of Reformed theology. The leader of this movement is Martin Luther, not Jesus Christ. And where Jesus was a Jew, Martin Luther loathed the Jews with every fiber of his being. As Reformed theology draws the church back to the Roman Catholic Church from whence it came, it is our privilege to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We do not need to agree with everything their leaders do. We do not need to get behind every political policy of Israel simply because we believe that God has a plan for them. We do not need to think that Israel can do no wrong or blind our eyes to any sort of uh, wrongs that their, uh, that, that their leaders might do. Remember, they're a bunch of unbelieving pagans. They are in that spirit of slumber nonetheless. And yet we pray for and long for the day when the nation of Israel will be brought back to God because they will. And we expect the day when God will call that election back to himself. And what will that be but the resurrection of the dead? Second, we are careful to remember that we are the circumcision. That this is the church's time to represent God. And if not we, then who? If not you and I, then who? If you and I are not representing God to the world, who will? If you aren't going to tell your neighbors, who's going to? If you're not going to tell, if we're not going to tell this city and our cities, who's going to? If we're not going to reach the people, who, who's going to? God has in his eternal plan placed upon us the privilege and responsibility of representing him to the world. And let us not take that responsibility for granted. Let us not waste it. Let us not miss this calling, this election. We are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, who rejoice in Jesus Christ, and who have no confidence in the flesh. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.